0: So Friday was a remarkable day May the 8th, 2020 Hugely important in its significance in Irish golf A celebration of the birth of Jimmy Bruin Ireland's first golf superstar And that is a fact Uh, Born 100 years ago on May the 8th, 1920 In Belfast Where his dad was, for a period The manager of the Munster and Leinster branch He'd been transferred up there And so he and his wife Margaret moved up there uh, she was pregnant, they gave birth to a little boy who became a boy wonder. So it's a sensational story, but it's also a kind of a, a tale of Irish golf really as well because he did really bring Irish golf to the masses. And there was a fascination with him. There was worldwide attention, certainly in the golf world, in the United States in as far-flung places as Australia. And even further afield, but particularly in Great Britain and Ireland, Bruin was the wonder boy. He was our Bobby Jones. So this whole show and the other parts of the show, because I figure we'll be going into two, if not three parts, just based on the chats I've been having with different people on the phone and uh, talking about their knowledge of Bruin, their appreciation for Bruin, some amazing people. Um... I just don't think you could house it and give them quality time and put it into one show. So much the same as the three-parter on John O'Leary, I think we're in for quite the voyage of exploration when it comes to James Bruin Jr. And the Bruin family and the Bruin legacy and his amazing wife Nell, so there's lots to cover and lots of interesting people to meet. So thank you very much for tuning in and I hope you're out enjoying a walk. Or you're sitting in your comfortable chair in your house and you've got a nice pair of headphones on. Or you're playing it on uh, a Wi-Fi speaker in your kitchen or wherever it is. Maybe you're in your car if you're doing a bit of driving at the moment. Not a lot of people are. But anyway, there you go. That's kind of the tee up. And I have to tell you, I'm in a very beautiful place to kickstart the show. I'm overlooking Waterford Harbour. And grew up in this area in Clonmel. So would have spent a lot of time in Waterford and just at uh, beautiful beaches uh, along the coastline whether it was Clane or down at Tremor Dunmore East uh, we're in a bit of a haven here and I am kickstarting this show with a very special man in Irish golf uh, synonymous with Bally Bunyan for many many years and then with Faith Leg. and it is just outside the village of Faith Leg that we are perched uh, quite beautifully on a lovely patio overlooking the harbour and uh, this commanding view happens to be the home of the one and only mr ted higgins thank you for inviting me to your home ted
1: thank you you're very welcome
0: (laughs) and we're here we're obeying all social distance rules we are about (laughs) uh well we're in the outdoors for starters but we are about um i don't know eight feet apart two microphones and a little machine that i can record this interview onto. but um You know, you you and your family have this illustrious history in golf uh, from the professional side, Um, but you as a boy, along with your brother Liam and a clatter of other youngsters, were exposed to Jimmy Broon, this sensational person, never mind golfer, just this unique individual. Uh, When was the first time that you met him, can you recall?
1: It would have been when i mean i i think the first time that i really met him and was close to him was in 1950 50 51 when um i was asked to do that famous thing <laughs> that in, in um i was his second caddy like it was an exhibition match and i was asked to do a job wow now before we start we're looking out here down the river at a place, there was an old saying, by hook or by crook. Yeah. Cromwell was going to take Waterford, by hook or by crook. We're looking at there on our right, we're looking at crook. And if you go down beyond Dun- Duncannon and around the corner, you have the hook. Wow. So we're looking down by hook or by crook.
0: I love it. And uh, we'll take a photo to show that as well and maybe film a little thing as well because this is sensational the sun, I think it's probably the warmest day of the year and uh, the spirit of Jimmy Bruin has given us some beautiful weather to enjoy uh, this weekend and uh, as we remember him and celebrate him and those who are lucky enough to know him and meet him and you were one of those what a gift as a little kid you know the, uh, the heritage of the Higgins family in pro golf obviously led you to being in this position and what an incredible opportunity even as a little boy to get the opportunity you're now about to tell us about which is to caddy for him to be or to be with him yeah. inside the ropes effectively as he played an exhibition match with who were they?
1: You had Henry Cotton who was a f- great friend of his and you had George Crosby um, from the Cork Examiner and you had Tommy Egan who had um, um jewelry shop in Cork, and they were all tommy Tommy Egan was in Monkstown, and he was a scratch golfer. George was in Little Island, and he was a scratch golfer um, and cotton and brune were the thing is like that little island was about four or five miles from Cork, yeah, and there was about a population of a thousand people and Anyone who was in, had the use of reason, <laughs> knew Jimmy Bruin because he was such a great golfer. Yeah. Everybody in Little Island knew about golf. Um, and we did, and when I say I met him, but I knew of him since the day I could <laughs> walk. Yeah. Um. We were fortunate enough to, we were poor, but we lived on the boundary of the golf course over the sixth green. Wow. And we were all pretending not to be playing Cowboys and Indies, John Wayne or Ray Rogers. We all wanted to be Jimmy Brown. And we were nine or ten when we built our own golf course on the rock, that's what it was known as, Mm. on the boundary Mm. the rock and now it was only okay we thought it was great but it was only pitch and pot and there was more stones and rocks but you had to play in between the rocks and the whole lot and it was a great learning point for us and the first prize was a cup and saucer (laughs) second prize was a cup and third was the saucer I love it and that's where we started. We started our golf. And that was... But that was all because of Jimmy Bruin.
2: Mm.
1: Now, we talked about Jimmy Bruin. Jimmy Bruin... It is unbelievable that... In 1936, he was 16, and he went to... Burkdale. To Burkdale to play in the British Boys. And... He won that but between 36 and 3940 he had built a lifetime reputation mm-hmm. from the Americans the Australians they all wanted to see his swing that it was so exciting unnatural but his, his ability to swing the club the way he did with the loop and he developed, because of the loop, he developed much more speed in the swing than the ordinary guy who swing it back and swing it out. But with the loop, he built, and he had a wide arc, he built this fantastic club head speed at impact and this is why he hit the ball much further than anybody else now as well as that he had a driver and I often caught his driver and picked it up as a kid down by the pro shop when he'd be going out to play and the average driver is 11 ounces Mm -hmm. his was 21 ounces wow and this is where his speed and everything came into play and his natural strength his nature, like I mean he wasn't a big guy, he was he was actually a very quiet sort of guy but when he said something you took it on board <laughs> yeah, and yeah. believed it and, and that was it, but we let him do the talking because we were in awe of him, he was such talent and if you bring that talent that he had at 16 to 19, if you brought that forward by 80 years, Bruin would have made millions of dollars mm-hmm. before he even hit a golf shot because of his ability and the excitement around them and everything. But unfortunately, he was in the, in the 30s when there wasn't much traveling for golf. Mm. And the Australians... There was an Australian team came to Ireland in the 50s. I'd say it was probably came to Britain and Ireland. But they came to, and there was a guy called Too Good. Yes. He won the British Open. Peter Too Good, is that right? Yeah, British yeah. amateur Yeah. in the 50s. Mm. And there were eight to ten of them there. And they came to play Cork Golf Club. And I was caddying that day for mm-hmm. one of the uh, Johnny Butler. Yeah. That's all the names yeah john butler um but all the Australians too good and heard and Coogan, and that's back in the fifties, and I can still remember those names, mm. and they wanted they didn't care about anybody else, they wanted to see Jimmy Bruin. yeah, hit some shots all the way from Australia when he was only well nineteen, he, yeah it's amazing um.
0: So, there's a lot to mine here. Um, What we're going to do right now, before we start hearing some of your interesting tales alongside him, is we're going to play a little bit of music. And a lot of the music that you will hear over these few shows celebrating Bruin are from that era. And what an era of music. So, um, I have a selection here. Some of them have been chosen by his family, uh, which is great. Albums that Jimmy Bruin and Nell Bruin would have listened to on their little... uh, Hi-fi and their record player. Um, But we'll start with this. So this will be a mixture of music and great chat. The chat will be provided by people who knew Bruin, who are aware of Bruin in a deeper way, and those who knew the golf swing. And it's going to be a great assortment of family and friends as we celebrate a remarkable life, an incredible man, and a genius golfing talent who you know, brought Ireland to the fore, really, in golfing terms, so long ago, back in the 30s, in the 40s, the 50s and a little bit into the 60s and then until his untimely passing on May the 3rd in 1972 just shy of his uh, birthday which was um, just really unfortunate. He was 51 when he passed away having come back from a three-week stint a holiday with his wife Nell at the home of Henry and Tut's Cotton in Penina in Portugal. Um, but he loved music and he loved a bit of Herb Albert we'll play some of him later but that's a nice way to get it started of Bert Camfort and Swinging Safari and I'm in the company of Ted Higgins who grew up on the boundary of Cork Golf Club from a golfing dynasty himself and um, you know Ted we've kind of set the scene a little bit with regard to your unique uh, viewpoint shall we say because you were exposed to him very early he was this iconic figure in your life and your family's life uh, your great-grandfather coached him um, so there's lots to talk about there and we will explore a lot of that But um, I suppose, you know, you were about to talk about this involvement that you had in an exhibition match with local legend Tom Egan. Henry Cotton was over for this exhibition match. George Crosby was the, I suppose, one of the rising stars of Cork Golf Club and came from that other newspaper dynasty uh, that owned the Cork Examiner, as it was called then, and now the Irish Examiner. And then, obviously, you had Bruin, who was this just uh, magnetic individual from your
1: city. Um, So you were about 10, 10 or 11. 10 or 11, no more. And I'm kind of wondering today, like, why was I asked so young? Like, I mean, I was probably... It was, to me now, looking back and it, like, it was a great honour to be asked to do this. And all it was, was... um, There was this exhibition, Henry Cotton, Bruin, George Crosby, and Tom Egan, and I was told that all I had to do was put back his divot. (laughs) That was your job? Bruins divots. That was it in in Cork. Cork. And we started very early on at the second, second hole, and I think it's the par five, and he was a good bit down the fairway, and he took out a seven iron and took a practice swing. And I am not even. I'm even closer to him now. Yeah. So there was no social <laughs> distance. I he nearly hit me. I was so close to him that he could have hit. But he hit this ball, and this divot took off. It was more than a foot long. Yeah. And I was gone, like a shot, and I was back, and he was still on his follow through. and I put the divot down and he said to me turned to me and looked down at me Sonny said take it home and practice on it
3: (laughs) Uh,
1: what a classic and but because where we where we came from and the number of people and he was there he was a very quiet guy but appeared and every time he appeared he was like a new guy well, wow. we all wanted to watch him and see him. There were always people out walking whenever, in the competitions down there and the whole lot. And another story I I had I was, when I went to Ballybunion. We were talking. I was talking to some of the new members, local guys there in Ballybunion, and the book confused me a little bit. But I have no doubt that he won an Irish close there. And I think... That's right. No, he won... I think it was... The, he beat Redmond Simcox, if I'm not mistaken. That was somewhere else. But this one was in Bunya and I think it was between... night be, In the yeah. war years, between no, 40 and 46. But anyway, this guy... It was the 30s, I think. I mean, I have it in the book if you... He won, yeah. two, in was about, he, he won two
0: in the 30s. He, he won two in a row and then was beaten in the final in, yeah. in the third year. But anyway, but this he definitely won I think it was 1937 if I'm not was mistaken won in yeah, But absolutely. anyway
1: the story was that uh, his mother <laughs> um, got to Bally Bunyan a week before the tournament and heard of this caddy and got him said look uh, I want you to caddy for him and whatever and he said right and there was a famous guy, Le Hinch guy, John Burke. Of course, legend, Walker Cup player, multiple to, winner of... Yeah, yeah. the south, south of and Ireland and and yeah. Came to Ballybunion and went straight to this caddy. And the caddy, he said, um, Are you OK? And he said to, to Burke, he said, No, he said, I'm caddying for somebody else. Wow. But Burke said to him, Look, he said, I'll get you to the final. <laughs> and the caddy turned to him and he said, Sir, I'm going out with the winner. Oh, wow. I'm caddying for the winner. That's great. And that was the way it turned out. Yeah. Now, the caddy had problems with Bruin. He dropped the bag on him. Did he? He did. He irate with his behaviour? or Because he br- was
0: quite temperamental in his own way, wasn't he? And Bruin demanding.
1: wouldn't take the club that he was giving him. Okay. Wouldn't do the things that he wanted to do with him and he dropped it but his mother took <laughs> control of the situation and went to the caddy and said okay you're in charge and that's it and that and that was that's history he won that tournament and that was another version of Jimmy Bruin. But The funny thing is if you look at the photo in the book of him
0: accepting the Irish Close Trophy at Ballybunion Simcox I think is sitting I, I don't have it in front of me but Simcox is sitting down he's been I th- I'm i fairly certain he was the runner up but John Burke is kind of leaning up against a wall as the players I think Burke probably lost in the semi-final if I'm not mistaken but he's kind of just looking on at this boy wonder yeah, yeah. and this guy is usurping his place in Irish golf at the time and is set to take over and the fo- photo right. just captures Burke, captures, kind of yeah, maybe, sullen.
1: Maybe, but the, I yeah. think it was, like the story was that the, the caddy said to him, "Look, brilliant, um, Mr. Burke, I'm going, I'm yeah. going out, <laughs> I'm caddying for the winner." Yeah. But you see, we got so used to him. Um, you see, in, in 36, 37, 38, 39, between Walker Cup and Ryder Cup and championships. He was in full flight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everybody wanted to know him and this. And he was cute enough, like he wasn't playing in championships when, we'll say, something else, or wasn't playing in a tournament that the bigger one was the week after. He'd keep himself for for the bigger one. And uh, he was cute enough at that stage for that. But like during 1940 and 45, 46 he played all his golf in Little Island because Mm. there were no tournaments because of the war and he was at home and he was every Sunday and everybody we all looked forward to now again I had the special the special fortune, good fortune of having, he had a caddy, Mm. Connie Griffin He would always ring the caddy master and say, look, tell Connie I'm coming down. But Connie never went on the practice ground with him. That Jack Higgins would get me or Liam, or if we weren't there, he'd get somebody else to go and pick up the balls. Mm. And with Bruin, he was, he hit it so far, you see, (laughs) that you had to stand 30 yards further back than the ball because they'd be landing in around you. And when they'd stop for a chat, when Jack Higgins was telling him something, you would run in, pick up five or six balls, and back out again. Wow. Wow. And that was... But there was another story then that... um, you're on to the story now.
0: Just You hold that thought for a second because we're going to play another piece of music. I want to hold the listener as they're out for their walk or they're in the car or wherever they're listening to this because there's just too much gold here. We're just going to break it up, Ted. And I think what we're going to do is play one of the great stars of the time. We're talking here now about the 40s and um, old Blue Eyes. Here he is, Frank Sinatra. A man who had the courage of his own convictions. A bit like Jimmy Bruin.
2: Fly me to the moon Let me play among the stars and Let me see what spring is like On Jupiter and Mars In other words Hold my hand In other words In other words, I...
0: Fly Me to the Moon from Frank Sinatra, chosen by Mel Morgan, that former sponsorship supremo (laughs) with Waterford Crystal. Waterford Crystal, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mel has come along for a little audience here as we uh, listen to the stories of Ted Higgins and Karina's here as well. And it's a beautiful, beautiful morning here on this weekend of celebration of the legend and the legacy of Jimmy Broon. But Fly Me to the Moon from Frank Sinatra. Nice little musical interlude. We've plenty of music to come, but plenty of more guests as well. But right now we're giving pride of place to Ted Higgins, who just had this unique viewpoint of, of uh, the great wonder boy himself, uh, Jimmy Bruin. So you you had unique time with him on the range as he worked through the bag. And it was your great, great-grandfather who yep. was coaching him, the legendary Jack Higgins. Jack Higgins, yeah. Who was associated with Cork Golf Club for a long, long time.
1: All, he, all his life... And he was so well respected. Now, the one major thing was that he wasn't allowed in the clubhouse. Yeah, I know. It's, I mean, look,
0: it's, it's, a, it's a tragedy, really, in many respects, given what those
1: men uh, gave to the game. But he was so well respected. That was how I got into Cork Godfellow. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you had to be an employer, Not an employee. You had to be an employer to get into Cork. But because of him. And the interview that I did with him was so tough that if if I did anything wrong, I was letting the whole generation of Higginses down. Wow. And he had me browbeaten and kind of... Frightened that I'd make a mistake. But all I wanted to do was get in, be able to play golf and didn't want, and practice and didn't want anybody. And he used to teach Liam and myself. Yeah. And I'd go out with him for a lesson and uh, and he was very interested in both of us now. And um, he'd say to me, he never said anything else, but nah, the other fella hits it further. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next thing, Liam would go in. <laughs> what did he say to you? Nah, the other fella hits it further. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because Liam now was renowned as a long hitter. He was. Liam was a gambler. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't. Yeah. I was. I and I hit it long enough myself. But with Bruin, um, and you'd want to know, you'd want to know the golf club where he was hitting the balls from, and. Um, did you ever play Little Island? I played it a couple of times, but
0: I carried for my mother there quite a bit. The sixteenth. Yeah. Great little hole down into the far end.
1: Yeah, it went up the bushes on the right yeah. and the whole lot, and the green is up on a plateau.
0: Yeah. Clonmel Golf Club won the Jimmy Bruin Shield on that on that green in 1988. I can I can definitely tell you that, and that was he a big moment would, for us.
1: He'd be playing from the ladies' tee. Why? To practicing. drive. It. Oh practicing, okay, okay. With irons. Jenny Mac. With an iron. And we'd be on the back of the green. And A par the ball, four? Yeah. And the, the, the balls would be landing in on the green. You see, he was able to practice where he wanted to. Of course, yeah. He had carte blanche, as they say. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. He was. Uh, but he was, you see, he had this ability that nobody in my time, nobody... Like, you can't say there was... I met guys, like, who didn't have a... He had everything. Yeah. And, like, we'll say McElroy is a bit like him, off the tee and the way he swings the club. Now, he is more straightforward on the thing. But McElroy does not have the short game, the hands that Jimmy Bruin had. Yeah. Which is the winning zone. Absolutely. His feel with the hands. And Jack Higgins used to be... And, like, at a very young age, like I didn't agree with Jack either. Yeah, okay. Well. <laughs> but he had... He had... Bruin was... Never had to think about a shot. Just went in and played it and knew how to put the feel into his hands for the shot, whether it was along the ground or whether it was up in the air. He was... He had this natural ability for every shot in the bag. And... And fortunately for him, he never lost it. Mm. Where fellas, I mean, I hit a couple of shots when I was a young fella. And like at the moment I'd be thinking I wouldn't go near the shot. Yeah. Because I couldn't do it. Like that time I didn't think about it. Like Watson in that last major in 2009. In Turnberry, yeah. When he went over the back of the green. I know, yeah. He was not able to play the shot he was 20 years before Correct. that. And he had to take a putter. <clears throat> and he had to take the putter around that. But Brown never had to do that. Okay. Now, he was a true amateur. Yeah. He did not want to be... He had no time for professional golf, really. Because he really... All he wanted, he wanted to win, but he wanted a golf ball as the main prize. Yeah, yeah.
0: So he had that amateur ethos. He also came from that generation where, you know, if you're an amateur international, you're living the life. You, you know, you can play in some amazing championships. And when you start winning in the way that he did, he yeah. really had entree into anything
1: he wanted. Anything to. he wanted, to, And He so could have gone. He could go. He could play in anything he wanted to play in. But was. Um, was choosy as well but yeah. like we were lucky as I say in court to be able to be with him around him around him yes yeah. and
0: he just had that sort of magnetism does not he, he and I, I he get the sense that he, even when he got out of his car well you'd see the car coming in I'm just yeah. imagining and there was a flurry of excitement or people started talking and whispering he's here and you would just observe every step <laughs> as he would walk just do normal things
1: Walk into the first tee, like I mean yeah. you were out watching him and all you wanted to do was see where this ball was going to go to. Yeah. And it was there. But you never you never turned your back. Yeah. When Brun was around. Yeah, I can imagine. You were always there with him. Yeah. And as I say, the people that wanted to see him. He was as and as I said at the beginning that he would, if it was today, if it was 80, 80 years later, mm. well, Ginny, he'd have got millions of dollars or pounds before he even ever played a tournament.
0: But even if it was 20 years later that he was born, say, like, he was born on May 8th, 1920, had it that been 1940, he would have been in Jack Nicholas's era. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And just to think about that, because, I mean, that was a phenomenal era when Jack you know, really hit the ground running as a proper full amateur in the late 50s and then into the early 60s and then made the decision in 1962 to turn pro. I mean, had Bruin just been 20 years later, he would have been our guy over here and they would have had to have met Mm. in a Walker Cup in probably 59 with Joe Carr and, you know, Noel Fogarty and and all these guys and Cecil
1: Hewing. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? what you had, you see he was more popular and more spectacular, much more spectacular than Bobby Jones. Yeah. Now, he equaled, but I have no doubt like he bettered Bobby Jones.
0: Yeah, in St. Andrews he did in qualifying as yeah, an 18-year-old for Burt the Walker Dale, Cup. Yeah, and he did as well. Yeah.
1: Like he, um, he was... Magic. Magic, yeah. He yeah. was phenomenal. And um, as I say, he was a very quiet, sort of guy he went uh, and even on the golf course he talked to you but like there was no big deal no big deal
0: and no big ego i mean he obviously had a huge self-confidence within himself for his golf and then obviously that mutated if that's the right word into business and how he wanted to do things my understanding of him is that he was quite the perfectionist Uh, We'll get into that in a second. Let's play another piece of music. I'm joined as we begin this exploration of the life and times of Jimmy Bruin, Ireland's first golfing superstar. I'm here with Ted Higgins, who caddied for him, who replaced his divots, who was on the practice range watching his great-grandfather give him lessons. Uh, This is from the horse's mouth, and that's the way we like it on this show. And uh, Ted, uh, you're, you're really teeing this one up beautifully because we've got some amazing guests coming, but... You are the perfect man to get it all started. Uh, so let's play another piece of music and uh, we'll wrap up our little bit of Ted Higgins in just a moment.
3: Four.
4: Straight down the middle, it went straight down the middle. Then it started to hook just a wee wee bit. That's when caddy lost sight of it That little white pellet has never been found to this day But it went straight down the middle Like they say Whack down the fairway It went smack down the fairway then it started to slice just a smidge off line. it headed for two but it bounced off nine my caddy says as long as you're still in the state you're okay yes it went straight down the middle
3: quite
4: a way the sun was never brighter the greens were Never keener to play I heard it ping down the middle It went zing down the middle Oh, the life of a golfer is not all gloom There's always the lies in the locker room And I'm in my glory when wrapped in a towel I say that it went straight down the middle today a golfer is not all gloom, though they charge you for listening in the locker room But I'm in my glory when wrapped in a towel I say That it went straight down the middle Where it wound up is a riddle But it went straight down the middle
0: Music is one thing, but Ted Higgins is he's in the flow now, he's in the zone. You can imagine what it was like to take on Ted Higgins yeah, in, in amateur golf yeah. in the sixties yeah, and yeah. and such a decorated career in professional golf and an amazing fella, but um you're bursting to tell another story about Brune and we're all ears. What is it?
1: Jesus, I can't remember now. <laughs> <laughs> Bruin no, you, was you, magic. You had, yeah. I was going through the book and trying to pick up things, like, but everything I wanted to say was on the book. You had done a huge <laughs> job on the, on the book. But he won two baton shields in the 30s. Amazing, yeah. In Cork. Yeah. But amazing thing about it was, the next time they won it, myself and George Crosby were on the team 40 years later.
0: Incredible. Incredible.
1: That was, we won two Barton Shields and one Senior Cup. George wasn't on the Senior Cup, but he was my partner on the Barton Shield. And
0: the other partnership was?
1: So you were with George. George, every time we played um, Barton Shield, we won the Barton Shield. No, he wasn't both times Um, with me the first time the first time that we won it and that was 38 years later than Bruin had won it Bruin was and those photographs were in Karkov Club up there and we were the next to do it in 38 40 years later yeah and um,
0: and you were a young you were a young aspiring amateur With we the were. dreams of maybe a career yeah. in the game as well at that yeah, time. Yeah, well,
1: at the time, like no woman could compete with a golf ball. <laughs> <laughs> Things changed. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but um, they that that that's kind of a unique story as well. Like yeah. that, it was Bruin and then us, and they haven't won it since.
3: Yeah.
1: Now, they've had good teams. They have won
0: the Senior Cup, though. Oh no, actually, Niall Goulding was playing for Port Marnock when they he won was, the Senior yeah. Cup in and, Cork um, Golf Club. Yeah.
1: Loy- his father...
0: Yeah, Loyal was good mates with Jimmy, wasn't he? He
1: was, yeah. yeah. He God was. rest
0: him, he only passed away in recent times. Yeah. Loyal Goulding, what, yeah. a, what a servant to Irish golf. What an enthusiast as well. Unreal. Loved Unreal. the history, <laughs> loved, loved Cork Golf Club. And yeah. I would meet him at the Masters every year. I used to read about him first going to the Masters. Dermic Elyse would have all these stories Mm. and they would have kind of just um, sown seeds in my brain with regard to all of this sort of
1: But, like, you know, with, you could be, with Bruin, you see, it's the same thing. We were so used to seeing him three or four times a week. Yeah. Amazing. That we got quite used to, but we never... We were never bored. We mm. never didn't go to the first tee when he was coming down. But Beautiful. and that was that was for four or f- that was four or five years during the war mm. when he wasn't travelling. He was back playing competitions on a Sunday morning and in Cork and and like I mean when you look at it like having to leave Cork for muskery yeah. To get a handicap. I know. Like, what were they thinking of? Well, it's just
0: it's just one of these sickening and maddening rules within certain golf clubs, given At the, the era. Yeah. And you're talking about a kid who learned his golf in Cork Golf Club. And his his dad, obviously, was a member, got in, you know, because he yeah. was a prominent individual. He's yeah, a bank he was, manager. And then he kind of... He
1: sh- was working for, when they came back from Belfast, he was working for... Sunbeam, Sunbeam Woolsey. Sunbeam yeah. For the, the Dwyers, yeah. who... When Cork Golf Club was burnt down, when the clubhouse yeah. was burnt down, the Dwyers built the new clubhouse.
0: Yeah. And. So that was a good entree for, for him. And that obviously led to Jimmy then learning the game at Cork Golf Club. But Jimmy then, then,
1: he was asked, there were people talking to him to to turn pro. Yeah. And the mother and father said no, because there was no money in it. No, not at all. Not, nothing. And that we would get him a job in Sunbeam. Yeah. And he then they did, and he went to Sunbeam for, for a while, and then he opened up his um, his mm-hmm. insurance company, and it was a very successful business and it had to be because there were only fellas. I'm sure wanted to go into the office to take out a policy, just to <laughs> have a chat with him. Of
0: course, yeah. I mean, he, he, that was it was a good, magnetic draw yeah, was having yeah, someone yeah. of such and, prominence, uh, and a cork man, and he was accessible because he was open for business. But, you know, just to further your point, because it needs clarification, this thing. Um, When he was 15 years of age, he went to play in the British Boys' Championship. And I think Alex Kyle beat him. Uh, He was 15. And they had the ambition, because they knew he was a boy genius on the rise. And his parents kind of facilitated this. Uh, But for him to play in the British Boys' Championship, or as the RNA like to call it, the Boys' Championship, uh, which is right and proper, but you needed a handicap, obviously. But Cork Golf Club would not give him a handicap because he was a junior member. They didn't do that kind of thing. And it was in the charter of the club or whatever. So, needs must. And I think James Bruin Sr. said, all right, Uh, he had a word with one of his contacts in Musgrave. In Musgrave, yeah. And uh, they signed him up immediately for obvious reasons. And they gave him a handicap, which allowed him to play in the boys' championship of 1935. And his experience at that level... Fueled his ambition. He now had a handicap, but he was playing out of Musgrie Golf Club. So in 1936, he heads over to Burkdale and he is Jimmy Bruin of Musgrie Golf Club. He played all his golf in, it must be said, in Cork Golf Club, but Musgrie remained this loyal attachment and he always loyally represented Musgrie as his home club because that's where he got his first handicap. And... It's a it's an amazing kind of linkage, and Musgrove are absolutely proud of that, and Cork Golf Club obviously are very proud of, you know, their connection with Bruin, which is so deep rooted. But it's an it's an awful kind of thing within clubs that they were that yeah. fastidious or um, overly strong on these kind of rules, and they missed out. I mean, Cork
1: Golf Club lost hugely, out in some respects hugely. Yeah, they. Um like, I mean, to this day, you know, I would wonder, how did they not? <laughs> how did they not yeah. Do give him a handicap? And in fairness to Broon, like you've said, he recognised Marsgrief for what opportunity they had given him. Absolutely. And stayed with them all his life. Yeah. The only thing he did with Cork Golf Club was that he played... Senior Cup and Barton Shield for them Mm. all the time. But every other tournament, like be it Ryder Cup, Walker Cup, Irish Open, Irish Close or whatever, he was muskery. Yeah. And And that that
0: says a lot about him, doesn't it? You know what what I mean? In terms
1: of doing the right thing. And, but it's amazing like that if you look at him in the 50s and when later on, 50s and 60s. He never played any golf mm. in Musgrave. Mm. Mm. Always down to Little Island. Little Island, yeah. And himself and Connie Griffin. And you wouldn't get a word out of Connie Griffin either. <laughs> the caddy. Yeah, the pair were like silent. Absolutely. <laughs> <but> deadly, <yeah. laughs> they were. And he never, ever, ever, unless it a unique situation where he didn't tell anybody it was on the spur of the moment that he went down or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Nobody ever caddied for... I don't ever remember anybody else caddying for Bruin or only Connie Griffin.
3: Yeah,
0: it also kind of leads to the assessment that Bruin was this phenomenally organised individual. Like, he had a very organised brain. Like, he had a very advanced brain in many respects because he was a boy prodigy. He was someone who accelerated and was able to do it, knew what he was doing understood what he was trying to do and had the, yeah. he had the obvious natural gifts of everything with regard to the game of golf and he had his own uniqueness. But he was a man before he was a boy. And when you look at photos of him, and I'm sure you'll agree, yeah. he looked way older than a 16-year-old winning the boys' championship or a, an 18-year-old winning the Irish Close or winning, playing on the Walker yeah, Cup. Yeah, yeah. He looked
1: like he was... Gifted with immense sort of powers and maturity. Absolutely. He looked the same age, 16 and 25. Yeah, yeah. Or 20, 25, he looked exactly the same age. But, like, and the more we talk about him, the more that I would kind of say, like, what are these people doing? Every time he'd go to Cork Golf Club during the war,
0: yeah, it was like there was exi- a buzz. It was an exhibition match every day. Yeah,
1: there was a buzz about the place. Like, and there was one time we went out and I was playing with him and Jimmy Bone. Yeah, great
0: um, Irish amateur, and uh, yeah, another Jimmy, kind of prodigious talent in his own way.
1: Absolutely, uh, Jimmy Bone, um, Bruin, myself, and the Fort guy. He stood up on the tee and he said, I'm playing with three kind of lash, lashers that were... <laughs> and there's one striker. <laughs> I'm the striker. And who was it but Hugh Coveney. Wow. Um, the former Simon's minister, S- Simon's dad. Simon's dad, yeah. So the Deputy I Prime am,
0: Minister of Ireland right now, his father was the He was the... He was the... He was the lasher. He was
1: no, no. He was the striker. He was the striker. We were. Oh, the so he
0: was taking the Mick. Okay, yeah. Right, he yeah, was sir. taking.
1: Here I am out with that's three. Yeah. <laughs> that's And who uh, like Hugh Coveney? Yeah, and that's good. That's good. That's like good. I mean, wow. And that was him. But but I, he felt comfortable with all you guys. Like, absolutely, you, you were
0: all really good golfers, and <laughs> Bruin was a sensation.
1: And then he was in charge of us. You see, for Senior Cup and Barton Shield, Hugh Coveney was. No, no. Oh, sorry. Uh, Jimmy Broome. Jimmy was yeah Jimmy, was, yeah. Jimmy was, yeah. Jimmy was. Wow. He was in charge of us, like, and... How would he talk? Can you Can you just... Because I've never heard his voice. And
0: I've, like, done so much kind of digging on him and his story and looked at all these photos. And I kind of imagine, now knowing his sons, um, he like, was, he
1: had a nice cork lilt for starters. But he was a very quiet, spoken person. Um, might say to you like he didn't have didn't have a cock accent
0: he didn't okay
1: not 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 did, but like he would say ted you're playing this match and um, all you need is four pars to start with yeah and then see where you go from there good advice don't get try and get four pars don't do anything silly yeah just four pars and you won't be down so think of it in stroke play terms for that initial part and then you can assess In match play even like I mean you won't be down if you start out with four straight pars. Yeah. I was a member of saying that to us as a team and like and we were a good team because we had Liam, we had Bone, we had George Crosby, yeah. we had Lyle Goulding. Yeah.
0: Um yeah, amazing names like
1: On the team there, and the problem was that we couldn't be controlled. We all wanted to be better than the other. And you could be, like Jimmy Bone, and myself, we'd say twice, we were going for places on the Irish team. And in the Senior Cup, I'd want Bone to be beaten, for the team to win, (laughs) 3-2, and Bone to be beaten. And I have no doubt that he would want the same. Yeah, but there was fierce competitiveness, and you all kind of prosper as a result of that. Really. Absolutely, because we were like Dave Kiley, who was another guy. He was played got one cap for Ireland rugby. Yeah, um, because he was playing with us, he got a cap for Munster as well, playing golf. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean,
0: you often wonder, why are Cork people so um, confident? <laughs> well, I have my theories on that. We'll, we'll return to that in a moment. Uh, let's play another piece of music, because um, this first episode, is, I, I knew this would happen. And the minute you get Ted Higgins talking, and I have to say, this is the first time that Ted and I have properly physically met. We've spoken a couple of times on the phone, and then when I was researching my book, I uh, was put in touch with Ted, and uh, that's 13 years ago. But this is our first time together, so I think we might just need to make this the Ted,
1: Ted Higgins episode. Yeah, you better come back again. Ah, yeah, right. I don't.
0: Uh, I think we will. Let's. Um, okay. Let's let's go for a bit of Herb Albert, because this was um, this was an artist that Jimmy Brune and Nell Brune loved playing on their their hi-fi. Just got Sorry. a picture of the scene, folks. We're um, we're on the patio here at Ted Higgins' house outside Faith Lake. Beautiful Faith Lake. Everything is quiet. There's no golf anywhere in Ireland at the moment. And uh, Ted pretty much was just created this golf course and development here in the early days and uh, had a significant history here, but obviously was the head pro at Ballybunion for many, many years. In the Halcyon days as well, when Sandy Tatum came over, brought Tom Watson. And uh, they pretty much... ...began what is now Irish Golf Tourism. Um, So we'll talk about that some other day... ...because we're talking about Jimmy Bruin right now... ...and uh, Ted Higgins is dominating this first episode. I knew this would happen... ...and it's a good thing... ...and when you know it, you just got to go with it. It's like getting a run of birdies, Ted. (laughs) Absolutely. Get the head down and just, you know... uh, ...put the foot to the floor. So... ...he was quietly spoken. He was organised... He was highly professional in his thinking, and that was exemplified through the successful insurance business
1: that he grew. Did you come across he and Nell much together? Who? His wife Nell. Not, not like not in, le- in latter years. But, but together when they were, you uh, know, back in the she day. She would be. She would come down. She was. She was a very quiet. Like he was quiet, but she was much quieter, and she was like they were the ladies were kind of alone to themselves they had a Thursday and there was no way a man could be seen on the golf course on a Thursday they weren't allowed on a Thursday I mean in most clubs it would be a Monday but
0: you guys in Cork have different ways of doing things then
1: the the ladies weren't allowed in the clubhouse Saturday or Sunday when Bruin was told to go to Moscow (laughs)
0: yeah (laughs) we are recording now Ted so whatever just mind what you're saying now but
1: (laughs) But they were they they were the facts. Yeah, and that's how it was. The wives came down, yeah. fired the husband, and they had to wait out in the car wow. until he finished his pint. or <laughs> <laughs> No, Brun, Brune never, he was never, well, he, he'd he go into the bar all right, like he would, but he'd never, he yeah. might have one pint, he'd yeah. never have... He wouldn't. Um, he
0: did take a drink. I mean, he, he, enjoyed, did, yeah. he
1: enjoyed. He enjoyed Yeah, He did. Yeah. yeah. And. I just picture him really well dressed all the time. Immaculately dressed, yeah. Always well dressed, and. Ted is being distracted here,
0: live yeah. on air.
2: Yeah.
0: He was. I think there are starlings making noise flying here. Flying
1: around the place, yeah. Yeah, we've got Irish nature all around yeah, us here. He was always. Um, he was always uh, he, pristine. He was always I would think. himself. Yeah, and he looked after himself; was in good shape to, to the day he died. Mm, mm. And I don't know. He had a he he did have a car crash. Really, I didn't know that. He did he ran into the back of a lorry or something like that? in okay. the car. Before that, before that, before he died, but um, he wasn't he wasn't sick. Did you have long chats with him ever? No, not. You you see, you were so used to him. Yeah. Like, if it was somebody that you would only see every, maybe twice a year or something, you'd sit down, a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and have a chat. But he would never say to you, look, um, or say to anyone, like, we'll go, mum, we'll go for, and have a chat. Yeah. Unless he wanted the whole team together, like, and talked to us and and had things to say and kind try and motivate us um, a little bit, like, I mean, but otherwise, no, we knew knew him too well, you see. Yeah, yeah. And we were around him so much.
0: It was easy. So he did what he did and you understood it and he was always respectful of... Absolutely, claw, uh, like I'm to, sure
1: he must have said, like walk into the first tee every time he went out. Jeez, can I get a bit of peace? Can where I just, are these people going? Can what I, are they doing? I like? know, I know, I know. And the practice ground was the place, like where these balls were coming at you, like from two hundred and fifty, three hundred, two hundred and fifty yards with the iron, with the two iron, or, and they were pounding. Yeah in around you but you were that 30 yards further away amazing and then you would rush in and rush back out yeah and there was another guy Daniel he's come for lessons around that time as well and I was told pretend the ball was going over my head the ball would land 20 (laughs) yards short of me and run up to me and I'd be watching this (laughs) thing going over the (laughs)
0: But he just couldn't compare with Bruin. No, no, no. But you no. made him feel good that he was actually striping I it. did, yeah, and you'd <laughs> stay
1: there, especially when he hit the last couple of shots. You'd stay where Yeah. the ball never went up there. Like, yeah. But you went up there. Give it the thumbs up or something. Give no? it <laughs> the thumbs up or whatever. But they were the great times. But that though.
0: guaranteed you your, I don't know, shillings or whatever you were getting? Is well, it? you got a half crown from
1: Bruin. Right, okay. Two, and like half crown was... That's decent dough, yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah. And um, And when would he give you that money? Oh, he'd give it to you straight when you'd come in. Yeah. When you'd come straight in, he'd give you the half a crown, two and six. I love it. And Happy uh, days, Ted. Happy days.
0: <laughs> so you must have built up a nice little cookie jar of coins, did you? Or were you, What were you spending it on?
1: I wasn't spending it all. I had to give it up at home.
0: Oh, I see, right. They
1: needed it. They Proper. needed. Okay. They needed that at home. And I lost it one time. The, f- the half crown? Between the club and home? No, I lost because... I lost three shillings. Walking from the clubhouse to my home. Yeah. Which was, like, down through the golf course and the whole lot. And it was late at night. Yeah. Must have been a, a summer's night, half ten, eleven o'clock. And my mother, I could hear my mother up on top of the cliff and she was calling me Ted and I was kind of crying. I've lost my money. (laughs) (laughs) I've lost my money. Come on. It's all right. It's okay. But I've lost my money. My caddy money, I lost it. Devastating. And I was devastated because that was going home as well. And was paying for the shopping
0: or paying for whatever.
1: Yeah. So...
0: So you were that close to the golf club. I'm just trying to picture the scene. Um, the sixth. The sixth, so near enough to the quarry and kind of... Yes, you know the, the house Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, up okay. in the thing?
1: Yeah. Now, we were only 200 yards before you would get to that house.
0: Yeah.
1: In in there, and that's where we had our own little golf course. Yeah, of course. Rock yeah. on the rock. Brilliant. Between stones. We had no machines or anything like that, so. but... You created your own little fantasy yeah. land
0: of golf. And then, I mean, they did that in Port Marnock. You know where, where the Port Marnock Lynx is now? Yeah. There was a little three-hole area that the juniors, Noel Fogarty and these guys, would play in this, and that's where they learned the game. That's
1: right, yeah, that's right. And, you
0: know, you look at and you look at the Gannons living right on the golf yeah. course, and you could talk about the Ewings in County Sligo, or, you know, there's so many other dynasties that were just, by virtue of their place of dwelling... yeah. And their proximity to a golf course, it led to a whole family involvement
1: forever for generations. Yeah, then. and we we were the same because we would play from the cliff down to the sixth, play the seventh. Yeah, the seventh was the part three, and then play the fifth. Now our problem was that our granduncle right. was <laughs> the was the green keeper. <laughs> And he was watching us like hawks. Yeah, he'd be inside of... in the first bushes and he'd have the swisher, you know, the big yeah, yeah, yeah. swisher for swishing the greens. Yeah, and the
0: dew off the greens and stuff, yeah.
1: Chasing us and we'd have to watch him, like, instead of leaving us alone.
0: I know. Well, he, you know, the thing is, everyone needed to do some things properly then and there were rules. You know, yeah. you, you talk about today, we won't get into it, but I mean, the just the disre- blatant disregard for rules in general life is quite, quite an issue. But these people had to protect their jobs. They also had to show loyalty to the golf club, and your family was brought up in that, and that's why you know what I mean. You were able to carve out careers in in the game. In the game of were, golf, yeah. You were bred into it, and the, you knew uh, you had to do things properly. And you need to be well dressed, professional. You have to listen to thunder and keep your trap shot.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> <Luke> and, <laughs> and and like I mean, and I used to, I often say to Karina, like that Christmas dinner.
0: Yeah. What, what was that?
1: Fifteen minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Christmas Day was the only day of the year that the members weren't allowed play. Okay. It was for the caddies yeah. and their friends. And we were ten o'clock in the morning, four of us, for about five years, one after the other, out playing, home for the dinner, and back out for ten holes again. Phenomenal. The dinner...
0: gone yeah (laughs) (laughs) slice of it was just a it was just a thing you just had to wolf down it was our day it
1: was our day and Christmas dinner to
0: have the full playing rights on the golf course on the golf course behave like a member yeah
1: Put all back those the divots and we behaved better. All those merchant princes. You could be a prince for a day, Ted. <laughs> we behaved better than the members. I can imagine. By yeah. putting back the divots There's and the whole lot.
0: No sign of any activity at all. So no yeah. one would get How upset. How long
1: are we here at this?
0: Well, I'll tell you, we, we are... Uh, I have decided to blatantly disregard uh, my original plan. And you are now episode one, Ted, of what will be a, a voyage of discovery relating to Cork Golf Club, Cork Golf, uh, Irish Golf, but in particular Jimmy Bruin. Yeah. And it's a unique take that you have on it because you had first-hand experience and that's really what I'm trying to get with this whole pa- uh, podcast platform is just people who have, who have first-hand accounts. Because then you don't have to question it. It's either true or it's not, but it's coming from the person who was there.
1: um, to this day, I don't think there's been a better golfer. Yeah.
0: Well, I've heard that from so many people and all all around the world, by the way. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I believe, would I watch Tiger Woods every day of the week? No. Would I watch Jimmy Bruin? Now, whether it was because of my, am I going back to my 10-year-old age and saying watching him? No, I am watching him because of the loop and the position he would get into before the ball and after the ball. And you've got to be, and Christie Senior had that. Yeah, He mentioned that about Brune.
0: Oh, he did, yeah. He says the, the finest pair of hands he's ever seen on yeah. the golf
1: club. And this is what I was saying when I was saying to you that when it came to the short game, the long game and the whole lot, his hands were exactly the same. They were relaxed hands playing every shot he played.
0: Yeah, amazing. He was the complete... That's article. the bell. That is the bell. I think we should start to wrap things up. Yeah. Um, And I will finish with this question and it's a very serious one. He passed away on the 3rd of May in 1972. He was just five days short of his 52nd birthday. He was taken way too young. Um, In many respects, he lived maybe four or five lives in his own life because he had... He had the most colourful life. He had a very successful life. He was an incredible family man which we will delve into in in future episodes which are going to be coming at you folks. So... um, Stand by your podcasts. Um, What what was it like as someone who was that close or around him, knew him, played golf with him, you know, but not a family member? How was it for you when he passed away? You know, in that short space of time from getting sick on the golf course, he was gone within a week or or thereabouts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He was hospitalized that night that he felt uncomfortable at the club. And then it became this other story altogether. A very private story but for you as a, yeah. as a, as a, as a man
1: of Cork an Irish golf. It happened so fast you see that he went to hospital and it happened so fast. It was only a couple of days and he was gone and it was the shock for us all that we weren't going to see this guy down here anymore. And you were kind of saying to yourself, "Who now is going to take his place?" Hasn't happened yet. It
0: hasn't. Well, that's well put. Ted, can I thank you very much for your time? Thank you. And to be here on your patio. Yeah. With the lovely Corinne.
1: Beautiful day, and Mel. And
0: Mel, our friend,
1: uh, Mr. Fixit.
0: Mr. Fixit.
1: And we're overlooking Waterford Harbour. And by what? By hook or by crook. Yeah. By hook or by crook. We
0: and we're looking out at crook and we're looking just beyond down there at hook. And we won't talk about Oliver Cromwell. Maybe we'll delve into him at some other time. But <laughs> he, he was defeated in my hometown. Anyway,
1: that's all I know. <laughs> Mel, that's yeah.
0: right. Um, and we'll wrap this up and just say thanks very much for everything that you've done in Irish golf. You know, you're a very significant part of the history and lore of the game, and your family are synonymous with golf. But your unique connection to Jimmy Broon is. Um, well, it's just terrific and it's great to get your your thoughts and memories about that. Um, I'm going to finish with a piece of music and I'm going to go Cork and I think I'm going to finish with a little bit of John Spillane here, just that kind of unique bard that has come from the wonderful City by the Lee and Cork Golf Club overlooking, you know, on Little Island, overlooking Cork Harbour and you think back of all the success that they've had in that whole region because of import and export for hundreds of years there's a reason why they call it the real capital folks (laughs) uh some of us don't buy into it but (laughs) there is a reason uh ted thanks very much thank you thank you pleasure is a niche media production. Any and all unauthorized use or broadcast of the material contained herein will be in breach of copyright.